Well, amen. Thank you so much, choir, and thank you, instrumentalists. Thank you for all the hard work and effort that you uh, put into the program tonight. I think it'd be fitting for us just to give them a round of applause and just to and thank all of those who've worked so diligently over the last several, over the last several months. And I'm going to ask if we can turn on the house lights tonight, and, and that would be helpful. And uh, again, we're, we're honored and delighted that you'd be with us here on this Easter sun, uh, Sunday evening. And I can't think of a better place to be, uh, and I uh, hope that you'll agree with me after hearing that, that God certainly has stirred in our hearts. I'd like for you to take your Bible, if you have one tonight, and join me in the book of Acts, chapter number two, please. The second chapter in the book of Acts is where we're going to find our text this evening. And uh, I want to read just a couple of verses here, and I want to spend a few moments this evening uh, talking with you about this person who's identified in our text as Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. The Bible says in Acts chapter number 2 in verse number 22, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken. And by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. You know, there have been many great men throughout history who have left a a really profound impact upon our world and upon our culture. In recent days, I have sort of established... um, a goal to read just a little bit more, and uh, something that I felt like maybe I was a little bit weak in, and I wanted to improve just a bit. And so I've determined to read a little bit more this year, and I've read some incredible stories of some incredible men, men that we would all be familiar with, men like George Washington and Martin Luther and George Washington Carver and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Abraham Lincoln, among, among many others. And each of these men, of course, are known to us because of their enduring legacy. Though they've been dead, most of them, for many years, when their name is mentioned, most of us know immediately who they are and what they did and why they're famous or why they're, they're well-known. However, none of these, none of these can, can approach the magnitude of the scope of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. No other religious leader can compare with him either. This title that you see on the screen tonight, Jesus of Nazareth, it would have, it would have resonated with, uh, with the Apostle Peter's audience that day. You see, uh, had he been from the city of Jerusalem, then, then maybe, just maybe, they, uh, they might have viewed him just a little bit differently. But instead, instead he was from Nazareth. You can almost hear the contempt and the scorn as, as they would have referred to him during his lifetime as, as that Jesus of, of Nazareth. Nazareth, that little, insignificant, non-important, non, uh, non-thought-of town, really, in, in many respects. Most would have asked the same question that Nathaniel asked when, when he was introduced to Jesus in John chapter number one. And here's the question that he asked. Can there any good thing come from Nazareth? 
Yeah, I just think to myself as I'm reminded of that question and as I'm reminded of the mindset and the attitude that people had towards Jesus being that he was this man of of Nazareth, that our God, don't lose sight of this, our God delights in taking insignificant things and making them significant by his power and by his strength and by his ability. The life of Christ elevated this tiny, insignificant little town that few had ever heard of, and those who had heard of it thought little of it, and yet it put this town on the map in many respects. How impactful was the life of Jesus of Nazareth? Well, in our text, Peter, Peter stands on the day of Pentecost. Now think about this. In the middle of the very city that that some 53 days prior had crucified Jesus. You see, you see Peter is, is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost is 50 days removed from the day of the resurrection. And so we go back three days beyond that, and we have the day of the crucifixion. And so in the very city in which the town cried out, crucify him, crucify him, 53 days removed, Peter's now standing in the center of that city, and he is preaching this message. But it, but it doesn't end there. Think about how impactful the life of Jesus of Nazareth was. Not only is Peter standing in that city 53 days removed from when they had crucified him, but, but this, is the, this is the same Peter that 53 days prior, 54 days I suppose we could say, 54 days prior, this is the same Peter that's standing probably not too far from where he's preaching this message and he's being accused of being a Christ follower and he says words like this, who me, a follower of Christ, I have no idea who he is. I've never met the man. I I don't know what you're talking about. I've never seen him before. I'm not a follower of Christ. And yet here we are, 54 days removed, and Peter is standing up in front of a massive crowd, and he is preaching in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now think about the impact that this man had made. Think about the life that he had lived, and think about the enduring legacy that Jesus Christ leaves on our world and on our society. Oh, listen, only Jesus of Nazareth could change lives in such a manner. These Jews, listen, these Jews had been lukewarm to to Christ's ministry while he was here on earth, but now they're intrigued by Peter's message and the power behind it. In fact, in just a few moments, as Peter wraps up this message, the Bible tells us that 3,000 of them who heard the message that day, 3,000 of them would repent of their sins and would follow the Lord in believer's baptism and become members of this new church that Christ had established during his life and his earthly ministry. What did Peter, what was it that he told them about this Jesus of Nazareth that led to such dramatic results and dramatic impact. Why is is it that Jesus of Nazareth really is is different than other great men who who have lived and who have left their mark on history? I think I think Peter tells us the answer. I believe he gives us the answer in verses 22 and 23 and 24. And I want to share with you three things about Jesus of Nazareth that lead to great, listen, great transformation in our lives as we understand these truths, acknowledge these truths, and embrace these truths in our lives. Number one, I want you to understand that this Jesus of Nazareth, he's different and he's significant because number one, he was approved of God. He was approved of God. 
the Bible says. The word approved in this particular text and context, it, it means this. It means to show off or to exhibit or to demonstrate. So Peter proclaims, here, here's what he's proclaiming. He's proclaiming that the life of Christ, it showed or it demonstrated, it showed off, it, it, it magnified, it demonstrated that he was not an ordinary man. While he was a man, make no mistake about it, he was, he was so much more. He was, listen, he was God in the flesh. The Bible tells us that. In John chapter number one, in verse number one, the Bible says this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. If you'll notice on the screen, you'll find that we discover the word three times the word is given there. And each time it is capitalized, and it is referring, it is referring to a person and not a thing. It's referring to Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he was in the beginning, and that he was with God, and that he was God. The Bible goes on to tell us a little bit later in our text, in verse number 14, here's what the word says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Bible goes on to tell us in 1 Timothy chapter number 3 and verse number 16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. And he's saying that Jesus is God, that that's who he is. And we discover the things and the elements of his life that are found in that text. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 20, the Bible says, and we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. You know, there's a lot of religions out there that will tell you, they will teach you, they will preach to you that Jesus was a good man, that Jesus was a good teacher, that he was a great leader, and that we can learn a lot from his life. But I want you to know something. The Bible reveals a much deeper picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is not just a good man, although he was. Jesus is not just a great teacher, although he was. Jesus is not just a miracle worker, although he was. According to the scriptures, Jesus was God in the flesh. The Bible says that God showed him off in this way. That God demonstrated through his life and through his miracles and through his works that that's exactly who he was. I'm thinking to myself, these things that he did while he was here on this earth, they proved that he was God. Here's, here's why. Listen, God would not make this type of power available to a fraud, would he? If a man were an imposter, you think that God would give his miracle working power to a man who was a fraud, who was here to lead thousands, if not millions of people astray? Oh, no chance. But instead, over and over and over again, Jesus Christ did things, listen, that only God himself could do. And here's, what, here's what Peter is saying here on this day of Pentecost. He is saying that Jesus he was approved of God. In other words, God vested or gave his power to Jesus. And how do you know? How do you know he is who he says he is? Well, look at his life and look at the things that he did. And as a result of these things, they tell us. They tell us that God was showing off his son 
that God was demonstrating to the world, look at my son in whom I am well pleased. Look at the power that he has available to him. Peter reveals that his life is a demonstration. It is an exhibition that he is much more than just a common man. Oh, no, no, Jesus was approved of God. But notice, secondly, we discover in our text that Jesus of Nazareth, not only was he approved of God, but in verse number 23, we discover that he was crucified and he was slain by wicked hands. That's who this Jesus of Nazareth is. Oh, you would think with all of the miracles that he had done, all of the demonstrations of his power, that the people would love him. And the people would want him to live as long as humanly possible. I mean, he has the ability to heal people and to bring people back from the dead and, and to take blind eyes and to open them. You would think, wouldn't you? The Bible reveals that, that this miracle worker, this man who is approved of God, Peter says he was crucified and he was slain by wicked hands. We have to ask ourselves the question, well, who's responsible for this? And I think it's pretty clear in our text, isn't it? Number one, that this was done according to God's plan. Would you look with me again in verse number 23, where the apostle Peter states, him, speaking of Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Peter reveals that God was behind this. In other words, God purposed, God ordained, God decreed that this was to be a part of his plan, that this was to be a part of the life of Christ, that at some point he would be turned over to wicked, evil men for the destruction of his flesh, that these men would, would take him and that they would beat him and that they would humiliate him and that they would hang him upon a tree and that he would suffer and that he would bleed and that he would die. And we'd say, well, who's behind all of this? And Peter makes it abundantly clear, God's behind this. And that leaves us to wonder why in the world would God do such a thing? Why would God pour such wrath upon his only begotten son? That makes no sense. That doesn't seem right. Why would God do such a thing? The guilty can never redeem other guilty people. And here's the problem. We're all guilty, according to Scripture. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, therefore, listen, only the innocent can redeem the guilty. And so Christ, God's innocent one, God's holy one, he and his death, listen, it satisfied, according to scripture, it satisfied the wrath of God upon sin. The Bible tells us as such in Isaiah 53 in verse number 11, where the Bible says, speaking of God the Father, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. I want you to understand something. This was the plan of God. But I also want you to understand something. Because, because Jesus 
was, was, was God, but he was also man. We discover that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus Christ was wrestling with this plan. The fleshly side of him. Not wanting to move forward in some respects. Not wanting these wicked hands to lay hold on him and to take a whip and to beat him. Not wanting the Roman soldiers to lay his body out on a cross and take nails and pierce his hands and his feet. Not wanting them to take the crown of thorns and press it into his brow. Not wanting those things to happen. And we discover in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus wrestled with this plan. The Bible says in Mark 14, and he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. In verse number 39, the Bible says, and again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. In the garden of Gethsemane, just a few hours before Jesus would be crucified, he was given a cup. He didn't want to hold that cup. He didn't want to drink from that cup. Oh, that cup was as bitter of a cup as you might imagine. He wanted to pour out the contents of that cup and never, never let the bitterness of it touch his lips. That was his fleshly side. But God, listen, God had decreed. God had purposed. God had ordained if you and I were to discover salvation, if we were to be set free, if we were to be redeemed, then it would require that Jesus Christ, the innocent one, would have to drink from this bitter, bitter cup. Jesus wrestled with it. You know, there's a thought, isn't there? It's a false thought. It's a faulty premise. But it is a premise that exists in many people's minds nonetheless. That God's will is always pleasant. And that he won't ever ask you to endure difficult things. Some of you know that just simply isn't true. In fact, I would imagine the vast majority of us know that that's not true. All of us can think of difficult times in which we've been given a cup to drink from that we want no part of whatsoever. You heard the video just a moment ago of some of the precious people in our church who have been asked to drink from a bitter cup. They didn't ask for those things. God decreed those things in their lives. Can I tell you that God has given grace and he gives growth to people as they drink from a bitter cup like this. And our example in all of this is Jesus Christ, who according to God's plan was delivered into the hands of evil men, wicked sinners who crucified and who slayed him. But not only do we discover that this was according to God's plan, but he was crucified and slain by wicked hands. And we might ask the question, well, whose hands? And I just have to be real honest with you tonight by my hands and by your hands Jesus Christ was crucified and slain Peter says to this audience some 53 days removed from this event he looks at them in the eye this had to take such boldness and he says ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified 
and slain. Likely, Peter was looking face to face into the eyes of some who had stood in Pilate's judgment hall and had shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Likely, he was looking into the eyes of some men who had said, release unto us Barabbas, away with this man. We have no king but Caesar. He's not a king. And if you call him a king, you're not Caesar's friend. Likely, the apostle Peter is looking at men and women who shouted those very things some seven weeks prior. And what boldness to look at them and to say, ye have taken him and ye have crucified and slain him with your wicked hands. But here's, here's what I want you to know. Here's a sobering thought, and that is this. Peter, if he were standing here tonight, could preach the exact same message. Though, though I wasn't there, and though I didn't shout, crucify him, crucified him, don't lose sight of this, my sin shouted that. My sin brought Jesus Christ to this earth. According to my sin, God designed this plan that he be crucified, that he be slain by wicked hands. Whose hands? Just the hands of those that, that, that drove the nails into his hands and to his feet? Just the hand of the man who had the whip that beat him? Just the hand of the man who fashioned the crown of thorns and pressed it into his brow? Just the hands of the Jews that stood there and with their list, lifted fists cried, crucify him, crucify him. Oh, no, 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 we don't get off so easily. By my hands, Jesus was crucified and he was slain. And by your hands. The Bible says in Romans 4.25, who was delivered for our offenses. The Bible says in Romans 5 and verse number 6, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, I don't know about you, but I know about me and that's me. I'm the ungodly one. The Bible says in verse number eight of that same text, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I do know this about you because the Bible says it about you as well as it says it about me. We are all sinners. Therefore, Jesus Christ's death was for sinners. It was for me. Christ died for my sin. Christ died for your sin. Christ died for the sin of the whole world. Galatians 1 and verse number 4, the Bible says, Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Titus 2 and verse number 14, the Bible says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Here is the truth. And if you don't hear anything else, hear this tonight. Listen, I am the reason, you are the reason that Jesus hung on that cross. His death was my fault. His death was my fault. And though I never lifted a nail and drove a hammer into his flesh, I'm responsible for it nonetheless. These wicked hands right here, this wicked flesh right here, Jesus suffered and bled and died for. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He was approved of God. He was crucified and slain by wicked hands. Thirdly and finally, we discover in verse number 24, 
that he was raised back to life. The Bible says in verse number 24 of Acts chapter number 2, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. Death tied up Christ, and it bound him, as it does for all men. But remember, Christ was not an ordinary man. I believe we've already established that fact. For three days and and three nights, death had Christ bound. No man had ever, in the history of mankind, no man had ever been able to throw off these pains that are identified in this text. Even those who had been raised back to life, and we have some examples of that in Scripture, each one of them would eventually die again, and their body, their bones remain in the ground wherever they were buried. Whether it was Lazarus and whether it was the young boy that Elijah raised back from the dead in the Old Testament, whether it was the, whether it was the boy that, uh, that leaped out of his casket when Jesus touched it during his earthly ministry, or whether it was Jairus' daughter who was raised back to life at the age of 12, eventually those individuals would die. And listen, listen, the, the pains of death, the cords of death, still in many respects have them bound in a literal or a physical sense. For three days and three nights, death had Jesus tied up. He was bound for three days and three nights. And this would be, this would be the ultimate challenge. Oh, you can do some miracles. You can turn water into wine. You can touch blind eyes and make them see. You can even take the lifeless body of a 12-year-old girl and speak unto her and she gets up from, from a grave, essentially. But when you die, and you're going to die, Jesus, when you die, can you, can you get out of that? When, the, when, when death binds you and you lay in that grave, will you have power then? Oh, this is the ultimate challenge. Who would emerge victorious? If death, if death manages to keep him in that grave, if it, if it manages to keep him bound or holden, as the scriptures states, then death, listen, is the ultimate warrior. And we all lose. If Christ can throw off these pains, if he can manage to loose himself from these cords that he was holding to, then he, listen, that he is who he claims to be, and we are given a chance to be redeemed. And so this is the great challenge. And for three days and for three nights, Peter and the other apostles and the other followers of Christ, they sat back and they really thought that they were losers. They really didn't anticipate that he would rise from the dead. But see, we're seven weeks beyond this now. And Peter has a new understanding. And here's what Peter says. Peter says, this was never even in doubt. This was never really a question. Oh, oh I know death is powerful. But Peter says, listen, Peter says, it was not possible that death could keep Jesus in that grave. 
It was not possible that death could keep Jesus' hands and his feet tied up for the rest of time and the rest of eternity. In fact, in fact, the best that death could do, oh, they, it got three days and three nights, and that was the best that death could do. But you listen, on the third day, early on that first day of the week, on that Sunday morning, death thought that it had won a victory. Death had a stranglehold on Jesus. It had tied Jesus up the best that it possibly could. But on that third and glorious day. The Bible says Jesus arose from the grave, that he cast off those chains that had bound him. And death, death was no, death was no match for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Peter says, it wasn't even possible for death to win the ultimate victory. It was impossible that death could keep Jesus in that grave. So who is Jesus of Nazareth? And why is the impact he has made on our world so superior to that of any other ordinary man? Well, here's why. Because he's not just an ordinary man. He is the God-man. He was approved of God. He is God in the flesh. The Word, which was in the beginning with God and which was God, and the Word, which became flesh, and dwelt among us. That's who he is. And if that's who he is, then what he tells us in this book must be true. And this world is convinced that they can earn their way to heaven, that by going to church enough times and and by saying a few simple prayers that are recorded for them somewhere, and by putting a little bit of money in a collection plate, And by maybe getting in a pool of water or having someone put a little bit of water on their forehead or over their head, if I can just do those things, yet the Bible speaks of none of those things. The Bible says that if you and I are going to inherit eternal life, it's because we believe in the name of the Son of God, who is approved of God, who is taken by wicked hands, whose hands? My hands and was crucified and slain, but but who was raised back to life? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment.